Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. We're going to be in 1 Kings. If you want to be getting out your Bibles and turning to 1 Kings chapter 17, that's where the study will come from this morning. I want to remind you, as uh, we do about this time of year weekly, that we have our lectureship coming up this year. Uh, We're going to have Shane Scott and Tommy Peeler providing us lessons uh, from August 7th through August 10th. Uh, It'll be a series of sermons about uh, dealing with suffering and about seeing Jesus throughout the Old Testament uh, and understanding how He has been provided for us as our ultimate Redeemer uh, and our true hope uh, in this life. So I hope that you'll sketch out some time in your calendars and make sure that you're able to make it to that if you're in town. Uh, Last week we started talking about Elijah. And we started looking at the story of Elijah and, and now we've come to the point where Elijah is by the brook Kareth. Uh, There's a drought in the land of Israel, a drought that Elijah has prayed for. And and all around him, uh, everyone else is dying off or they're suffering or they're, they're going hungry or they're rationing to try to survive. But Elijah has been provided for by the brook and by the ravens who have been bringing him meat and bread in the morning and meat and bread in the evening. And he's been allowed to to survive in isolation uh, for many days, it says. Now imagine before Elijah went to Ahab, the king of Israel, and told him uh, there's going to be a drought in the land until I say so. I imagine before that event, Elijah probably lived a fairly normal life with the rest of the prophets. Uh, He saw the nation around him starting to deteriorate from all the idolatry and and all the evil that was starting to pop up. But this event of going forward to the king, he came to the king and he told the king about this drought was changing his life. that, That day was the beginning of the change for his life. Now everything would be dramatically different as God tells him in chapter 17... Uh, verse 3, to depart from here, turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth. He is now being forced to live in isolation, away from everyone else. And just think about the struggle and the, the difficulty that would, that would cause and, and that would be like to, to live all by yourself, to, to rely fully on God to provide you with everything you need. When we get to verse 7 of chapter 17, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 7, it says, After a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So Elijah's just been living off of what God is providing him, and he can see this brook go from being plentiful to slowly dwindling down to where there's hardly anything left. And it's all a result of the drought that he has prayed for God to bring on Israel. And and now the water's dried up. There may be still ravens bringing him food, but there's no water. Now, it's interesting that God allows this to happen, right? I mean, God could just... Say, strike a rock, and water comes from a rock. He did that for the Israelites. But God allows this to happen because Elijah has been has a mission that God has in mind. God, God wants Elijah to leave that brook and to go to a city called Zarephath. Now, Zarephath. That's 
probably not a name that we're very familiar with. It's not a major city in Israel. In fact, Elijah is down here at the southeast uh, corner, maybe just outside of Israel, across the Jordan. And now he's being commanded to go all the way across Israel to Zarephath, which is northwest of Israel. And it's in the land of the Sidonians. That's where Elijah is being commanded to go. It's very interesting that that God tells him to go there. And He tells him that He has commanded a widow there to feed him. That the widow who is in Zarephath is going to take care of Elijah now. He's He's had the ravens, now he's got a widow. So Elijah makes the trip. Elijah travels up to the city of Zarephath, probably witnessing all the devastation of the drought along the way. And whenever he gets there, he finds the widow gathering sticks and, and he asks the widow for something to drink. And the widow says, yes, sure. So she, she goes to the well to get him something to drink. And as she's on her way, Elijah says, and also, please bring me a morsel of bread. Well, to this, the widow is struggling because... There's not much flour left. She says, I've only got a handful of flour and and a little bit of oil. I've got enough to make one more uh, portion for myself and my son, and then we're just going to die because we have nothing left. That's all that we've got. Elijah tells her not to fear. And and it's interesting that Elijah tells her that... uh, If you'll just provide this for me, then I will turn around and provide for you. God will provide for you and you'll never run out. But as we study this part of the story, we just have to ask ourselves the question, why is this going on? (laughs) What is this all about? Why send Elijah to Zarephath to take care of a widow or to, to, to find a widow? Why Zarephath? You know, Zarephath is in the the region of the Sidonians, okay? Jezebel's father is king of the Sidonians. Ahab is king of Israel. Jezebel is the queen. She is from Tyre in Sidon. And she is part of the trouble that Israel is having. She brought Baal. She brought Asherah into Israel to worship those gods. She's wanting to kill off prophets of, of God. She's evil. And here God says... Elijah, I've got a mission for you. I'm going to send you into Jezebel's hometown to a widow who is there. Now, why in the world would God do that? And what's even more interesting is He sends Elijah to a foreign lady who is pagan, obviously. She's in the the region of the Sidonians. She's a widow and she's dirt poor. Of all the people that God could send Elijah to, why does he choose a foreign pagan widow who is poor to send Elijah to? Why would he do that? What's the point? Why, why choose her? She can't provide him with anything. That doesn't make any sense. She's not wealthy. She's not capable of, of providing Elijah with much shelter and much uh, benefit. Well, Jesus tells us the answer to this in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is speaking to his hometown there, and he says, A prophet is not welcome in his hometown. And then he says, There were many widows in, in Israel during the days of Elijah, but God sent Elijah to Zarephath. Why did Jesus say that? Because Zarephath was a foreign city, and, and the idea that God would send Elijah to Zarephath 
shows how Israel rejects its prophets. God's people will not accept God's prophet in their own land. So now God is sending Elijah outside of their land to bless a lady who is not an Israelite, who is this pagan worshiper of Baal in hopes that she will listen and that she will turn. And that's interesting that Jesus points to this and says, you guys have always been rebellious, so much so that God seeks other people who might obey, who might listen and do what what I desire for them to do. But this shows us something else. This shows us that God is not a fan of social barriers. You know, the, the... the stinginess of God to say, well, we're not going to accept the gods of the nations around us. We're, we're, you're only going to worship me. And you're not going to worship any others. Now, in a polygamous society, that would sound very uh, stuck up that they would say that. But God is not uh, just mad at people because He wants to be mad. He's not mad at them because, oh, well, you're worshiping other gods and I don't like you for it. He is holy and He needs to be considered holy. So, These people around Israel are not evil because they're other people, because they're not members of the holy race of Israel. They're not chosen. They're not evil because of that. They're evil because they're worshiping these other gods. And so God cannot accept them for that reason. But He holds no other other gripes against them. He's not against them because they look different. He's not against them because they were born in a different place or from a a different family. He's not against them because they're poor or they're rich or they're male or they're female or they're married or they're single or because they speak different languages. He's not against them for any of those reasons. Now, Israelites might have been against them for that. And and I know in our culture we can be against people for that. uh, But God's not. And this is making a strong statement that God is not just the God of Israel, but He's the God of all the nations of the earth. He makes this statement over and over again throughout uh, Scripture. This is the way God views mankind, that they are people who are made in His image, that He wants to show love to, that He wants to care for, but they choose to reject Him in favor of serving other gods. But God sends Elijah to a widow. And He tells this widow, your flower pot will not go empty and your oil jar will not run dry. This is in keeping with the picture we get of God in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 10.18, we read, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Just think about that, okay? He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. What's happening in this text? God is using a widow to to help Elijah, a sojourner, And Elijah is now, because he's a prophet of God, going to care for that widow and her fatherless child. All three groups are being taken care of in this text. God's showing Himself. He is one who cares for, He is one who loves those who are helpless, those who are in need, and He's able to provide for them, and He promises them great blessings 
in this text. Can you imagine this promise? Here you are, a widow uh, who is suffering greatly. Uh, You have lost your husband and now you are going to die with your son in this foreign land and nobody's going to help you and and you're about to run out of food. You're, You're at your last piece of bread. That's it for you. Imagine the situation. Imagine the anxiety, the struggle, the suffering that you're in at this time. And then all of a sudden there comes this man of God who walks in and asks for bread and and promises you that your flour jar will never be empty and your oil jar will never run dry. Imagine the joy that that would bring you to know that all those fears, all those anxieties will be taken care of. That's a beautiful picture for us of of God providing for someone who is not His people, but desiring to bless them because they're so helpless and in need. Uh, But there's more to the story than that. The story continues with the widow. Uh, And unfortunately, things go from really good and really promising to really bad. You know... At first, we kind of get the sense this is going to be great. You know, Elijah's going to come in and then the, they're going to have bread. They're going to survive the drought. Maybe this widow has a chance in life. Everything's going to go great. But then her son gets sick and her son stops breathing. This is probably one of the top ten most emotional scenes in all the Bible. This widow takes the boy who has stopped breathing up into her arms. Now, that means he's not a very big child. Can you just imagine having a young child who has died and having all this hope and all this excitement about having bread and now your child is dead. And, And taking that dead child to the man of God who has provided you with so much hope, with so much promise, and saying to him, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring to me to bring my sins in remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Imagine that anguish, the loss, the suffering of this woman who is bringing her, her young boy to the prophet. You know, I think sometimes we can discount this a little bit uh, beyond what it is. I mean, this is, this is huge. Okay, this, this lady is already at a significant disadvantage in society because she's lost her husband. Okay? You're a widow at that time, you lose your husband. He is the breadwinner. He is providing for you. He is your protection. He is so many things to you. But she's got a son. And that son's going to grow up and one day he's going to be strong enough to take care of her. One day he's going to get married. One day he's going to have children. She's going to have grandchildren. All she's got to do is survive long enough to bring him up so that he can take care of her. That small boy is more important to her than all the food that God is providing her. That small boy is her symbol of hope. And now he is dead. This reveals to us how quickly life can change. How many times has, has life been a roller coaster for us? Life is, is 
bad, and then it gets pretty good, and then it gets awful. Like, <laughs> worse than it was ever before. Life can be this roller coaster. Life can change in an instant. And here we see this woman on this roller coaster, and now she's suffering, and now she's struggling. And that's, that's a very sad scene for us to see, especially as her understanding has deteriorated of who God is. She doesn't know anymore. At first, there's this man of God who comes and he provides great promise and great blessing. Our, our food's never going to run out. And now he's taking away my son? Notice what she says. She says, what have you against me? This all seems very cruel, hateful, and tormenting to a weak and helpless widow. So she says, what have you against me that you would do this great evil to me? And she says to Elijah, you've come to bring my sins to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. She's accusing Elijah's coming as being the reason behind her son's death. As though he has brought to light the sins of this woman. I imagine they've had conversations and they've probably talked about how this drought has come about. I mean, obviously, uh, Elijah's whole reason for being there is because he was kicked out of Israel and God provided for him a way to receive bread and, and food to survive. So, I imagine this conversation has probably come up where Elijah's like, yeah, you're, you're Jezebel. You know her, right? Yeah, she came to Israel and brought all these gods with her and, and the God of Israel is not going to have that. So he brought about all this drought as a result of my prayers or something along those lines. And and so the woman's starting to understand the sin of idolatry and the, the worship of the one true God. And now she's seeing all this and understanding her own sins. Notice how she says, you're bringing my sins to remembrance. And now she's feeling as though this is some kind of punishment that she's receiving for her sins. The widow understands that she, like Israel, deserves great punishment for her idolatrous lifestyle. I mean, after all, she's an outsider to the one true living God of Yahweh. She's an outsider. And and she's a sinner as well. So maybe this is her punishment. Maybe this is what she deserves. But she's still upset about it and angry about what is going on. Contrary to her condemning statement, this is not... Elijah's fault. But what is going on here? Why has God taken away her only source of hope? Why would she provide this prophet to give her an endless supply of food and then take away her son? After the drought's over, that that food supply is going to end and then she's not going to have a son anymore. What what is God doing here? How is He working? She doesn't understand. And as we keep studying, we start to see Elijah responding to the woman. And notice uh, how he responds. He, He takes the boy. He scoops the boy up from her arms and he takes her to his upper room. And whenever he gets up into that upper room, he talks to God and he asks God. He wonders himself, what are you doing, God? What's going on? Have have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? 
In this tragedy, Elijah doesn't even understand what's going on. Why are you doing this? Lord, why have you let her die? And then Elijah asked for something amazing. Now being understanding of the New Testament, this may not seem too amazing to us, but this is amazing for the time period. Elijah asked God to revive the boy, to bring the boy back to life, to put his breath back in him. And that's something that has never been known in the history of the world. Now we read that Abraham thought God would resurrect Isaac after he put him to death, but he never put him to death. And he never asked God to resurrect him. But Elijah is asking for something that he's never seen before, that no one has ever seen before. He's asking for God to bring the dead back to life. And the Lord, it says, listens to the voice of Elijah and gives the boy his life back. Do we see that this is what we saw last week being repeated again? Elijah prays to God for something amazing and God hears him. You remember, we read James 5 and and saw how God hears the prayers of a righteous man, that they availeth much and that uh, even if those who are sick, if they come to God and pray, that they will be heard and those who are sick will be made well. That's also in James. But he said, Elijah was a man like us who prayed for three years that it not rain and it didn't rain. Elijah was a man like us. So here again we have this repeated theme that Elijah was a man of prayer and because of his love for God and his desire for this woman's child to be brought to life, God heard his prayer. And we see that God resurrects His Son, brings His Son back to life. And He takes the Son to the woman and He says, See, your Son lives. What a beautiful picture of God giving the widow joy once again. When Elijah takes the boy to his mother, the woman responds and says, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. This image of resurrection has removed all doubt and understanding that God is able to save to the uttermost. God is able to save those who are even already dead. You imagine, this woman has probably, because of what she's been blessed with, she's probably been praying for this sick son to get better. She's probably been asking God all along the way, Lord, uh, I've not been a worshiper of You, but please don't let him die. She let him, he let him die. And she loses all hope. And she accuses. But then God brings him back and then she knows. All doubt is removed because now she knows that God is a God of mercy and compassion. What's this story mean to us? As we study it together, why is this here? What is the relevance to us today? Well... When times get tough, when things get dark, do we tend to struggle with understanding who God is? 
You know, we start suffering. We start uh, in, going through pain and, and hard times. Or life takes a sudden turn, and all of a sudden, you know, life was good, but now it's a complete catastrophe, and everything is going wrong. In that instance, do we struggle to understand who God is? Well, notice that Elijah, throughout all of this, didn't know what his mission was going to be. He's going through all kinds of turns in his life. Going from Israel to the brook and then being told to go to this widow's house in Zarephath. And he, throughout all of this, doesn't really know what's going on. He's just kind of struggling through it and doing whatever it is that God says to do. Not really knowing whenever he's being accused of the, the problem of the woman's son dying. Not really knowing why this happened or what's going on. But the widow has, has had a completely different kind of turn of events that have, has led her to say the same thing. I don't understand you, God. I don't, I don't get it. I don't see what, what you're doing or who you are. I don't know you. Well, after reading this story, does God make more sense to us in all of our suffering? Do we now understand God whenever the hard times come, the trials come? I think we can. First of all, we need to understand some other things. First of all, we often create a God, an idea of God. And that idea of God is intended to remove all suffering from our lives. If there is a God, then He must remove my suffering. So we create one of two gods. We create a judging God who judges everyone else who is doing wrong, but He never judges me. He helps me. And so if, if I suffer, then that God fails me. Or we might create the opposite God, the God who loves everyone and blesses everyone, and He would never allow anyone to suffer. And that is really just... Uh, this ideal that's that's kind of unrealistic, right? That if, if, if anyone around us suffers, then God is this unjust God who fails everybody. So He can't be this loving God, but He can't be this judging God. Uh, it, it doesn't really work either way because none of these ideas of God really answer the question, why would God allow any suffering to happen? If He's a judging God, only they should suffer. And if He's a loving God, no one should suffer. Is it possible for us to have both a loving God and a judging God who allows His people to suffer? That's the question we have to grasp in this text. Is God a judging God who is able to judge and give wrath to those who are evil and a loving God who is able to give compassion and mercy to those He loves but also allow them to suffer? Well, this is the God that the Bible reveals to us. This is the God of Elijah. This is why God, whenever this is why Elijah, whenever he talks to God, he doesn't say, God, I knew that you would be evil toward this woman, or I knew that you would punish this woman for her sins. Elijah doesn't have that feeling at all. Like that's what God is doing, or that that that, that that's something that's going on here, as this woman has put her trust in God, that now he's allowing her to suffer as punishment for her sins. That's not the way Elijah looks at God. Instead, Elijah asks these questions kind of wondering because. This doesn't match up with the God that I know. The God that I know does not punish His people 
for their sins once they put their trust in Him. That's not what my God does. So what's really going on here? Is this just a time and chance thing? You know, Ecclesiastes tells us that time and chance does happen. Is this just a time and chance thing? It seems kind of odd that I'm here sojourning with this woman and you would let that happen. doesn't really make sense to him. So he appeals to God recognizing His love, that He is a loving God, that He is a helpful, uh, compassionate, and merciful God. But how can God allow His people to suffer in this way and still be just and still be right and still be good, allowing her son even to go to the point of dying? I mean... This is huge suffering and and he's revealing to the woman that that she needs to trust him but who would trust him at this point right she's got her only son the one who is supposed to help her for the rest of her life the one who is supposed to set her up because she's already lost her husband so how can she trust him now see the struggle that she has see the real problem of this woman is She's made her son her idol. Do you see that? She's made this son her idol. The son is her only source of hope. The son is the one who's going to provide her with everything in the future. Losing this son would mean losing her life. She doesn't understand that God is everything to her. That God is the source of life to her. So, as she's suffering and struggling to understand all of this, we see God is teaching her a very important lesson. As He teaches all of us very important lessons in our own lives. We've got idols in our lives that we need to let go of. We've got jobs, we've got houses, we've got cars, we've got animals, we've got money, we've got spouses, we've got children, we've got all kinds of things that if I lose this thing, my life is over. And here's God very clearly saying, no, I am everything. I'm providing you with all of these blessings to be enjoyed, but I am everything. And He's allowing us to suffer in our lives. If He takes those things away from us, He's allowing us to suffer so that we might come to trust Him more. That we might see He is the source of life, not that thing. That our hope is not in this world and the temporary things in this world because everything in this world dies. Everything in this world disappears. He is the only one who remains. But why does God let us suffer? And why is that okay? And why can He still be a loving God even though He lets us suffer? Because He suffered unjustly with us. Ultimately, that makes Him perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly loving and compassionate. God was willing to send His Son to to this earth to endure uh, us murdering Him on the cross of all places. He was willing to go through the suffering that's beyond what we've, went, we've gone through. That we might understand 
Suffering is a part of this life. If we live to be past 50, we're probably going to endure tremendous suffering in this life. It's just the way it is. Because this life is temporary. And He wants us to see it. He wants us to understand that. Ultimately, God is blessing the widow. And He's blessing us as He kills her son. (laughs) And we're just like, what? You killed a widow's son to bless the widow, to bless us? Yes. How did He choose this widow out of everybody? And why did He choose this widow? She's the most hopeless. She's the most helpless. She's the weakest pagan He could have ever found to serve Him. And He says, I even want her. I even want to bless her. I want to show her my ability, my power to provide. God is the source of hope for everyone. Everyone. Uh, Not just uh, Israel. Not just those who appear to be blessed in this life. But everyone, the poor, the weak, the lame. He is the source of hope for all of us. No matter how great our suffering is, no matter how mistreated we are, no matter how looked down upon we are, for whatever reason, God is the only source of hope for all of us. And He makes it very clear. He shows no partiality in judgment. He's willing to judge this widow. He's willing to judge everybody as as she suffers through the drought along with everybody else. But also, He shows no partiality in salvation. He's willing to save to the uttermost all those who put their trust in Him. Her son does not have to die for her sins. Because God's son will die for her sins. And we don't have to die for our sins either. Because God's Son has ultimately died for our sins. This is a picture of the resurrection. And that that resurrection is the power of God to save us from death. The sting of death doesn't have to make us afraid anymore. God wants us to know that His Word is the truth. And He wants us to put away all the idols in our lives... He wants us to turn from our evil to trust Him because He has the power to save. Not Baal. Not anything in this life. Not our children, not our wife, not our uh, jobs, not our money. But God does. Because God loves us, because He is a loving God, He provides us with His grace. He makes it to where there are no outsiders to His love. He makes it to where anyone and everyone who wants to put their trust in Him can find hope. A hope that is eternal. We will all die or we'll be raised before we're dead up into heaven to spend eternity with God if we put our trust in Him. But the choice is ours. The the widow was learning that lesson and we have to learn that lesson as well. We have to decide to put our trust in God. We have to make the widow's joy our joy as we understand God's desire for us and God's hope that we would turn to Him when times get hard and when we suffer. 
If there's anybody here this morning who has not obeyed the Gospel and has not put on Christ and received the forgiveness that He offers, if you've not been given the hope of resurrection when this life is over because you've not submitted your life to worshiping God alone, All these other distractions will come into our lives as we're trying to worship Him, but if you haven't decided, He is God and I will worship Him, we want to encourage you to do that because there's no hope otherwise after this life is over. If you need to do that and you know what you need to do, please come as we stand and as we sing.